0: In 2014, Anti-Affirmative Action Group Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, filed a lawsuit against Harvard College in Massachusetts District Court. The high-profile lawsuit alleged that Harvard's race-conscious
1: admissions practices were discriminating against Asian-American applicants. SFFA said Asian-American applicants consistently scored higher on the test score and GPA portion of the application, while scoring lower on the, quote, personal portion.
0: Judge Allison Burroughs ruled against SFFA, but this suit was the beginning of an ongoing legal battle. SFFA appealed the decision and elevated the case to the First Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld Burroughs' decision. Now, the case is facing a possible hearing in the Supreme Court. The fate of prior holdings that validated affirmative action is at stake. Thus, the constitutionality of affirmative action itself might be at stake. From the Harvard Crimson, this is the final episode of A Legacy Revealed.
1: Today, we're joined by New York Times Higher Education reporter, Anemona Hardakolis.
2: I'm Anemona Hardakolis. I am a reporter with the New York Times. I'm a national correspondent, and I cover higher education. I did go to Harvard, graduated from Harvard, and I was the arts editor of the Crimson. So uh, not covering issues like this when I was there, but uh, you never know what's going to happen in life.
0: Thank you for joining us today, Anamona. So where does the SFFA v. Harvard case begin?
2: The origins of the case. Well, the case was brought by students for fair admissions, uh, as you just said, the plaintiff. And the founder of that is Edward Bloom, who is kind of a legal strategist who has spearheaded litigation across the country, both in higher ed and in other venues, to eliminate Race consciousness in university admissions, in hiring, in voting. So that's his thing. And this particular case against Harvard heated up in 2018 when the trial took place.
0: In a nutshell, what is this case about?
2: The case is interesting because it puts a little bit of a different twist on affirmative action litigation instead of contending that a university discriminated against white students, it contended that Harvard was discriminating against Asian or Asian American students, I should say. And it was doing that according to the lawsuit by using a kind of a subjective personal rating to downgrade the applications of many Asian American students. That was the contention.
1: And what does Harvard allege in their response?
2: Okay, Well, first, let's make it clear that Harvard disagreed with all this interpretation and that it was based on a largely statistical analysis that found that when the Harvard admissions officers rated applicants they were rating them along several um, parameters including academics, extracurricular activities, um, athletic ability, whether they were a recruited athlete basically, and the personal rating and then an overall rating. So the plaintiffs found through their disputed statistical analysis that Asian America scored higher on the academic and extracurricular ratings than other students, than all other categories, uh, racial categories or ethnic categories. And also got very good uh, recommendations from interviewers, alumni interviewers, but were brought down in their overall score by their personal rating. So, the contention was that the personal rating was being used to stereotype Asian Americans as kind of mm, all the same, bland, grinding, um, lacking in effervescence. So Harvard, of course, didn't buy the statistical analysis, and and did their own statistical analysis, which came out with quite different results. And Harvard has kind of a long history of being at the center of admissions debates and has been supported in its method of admission by the Supreme Court, Supreme Court precedent going back to Bakke in 1978. And more recently, the Harvard admissions system, which is fairly widespread, it's not confined to just Harvard, has been supported by the Supreme Court at the University of Texas at Austin. Again, a kind of a factoring in race is one of many factors.
0: The so-called Harvard model has been cited as a legally permissible way to conduct affirmative action since the case Regents of the University of California v. Bakke in 1978. In this landmark Supreme Court decision, Justice Lewis Powell Jr. delivered an opinion suggesting that Harvard's model be used as a template for other universities because it treated applicants as individuals. In other words, race was a factor in admissions, but not the factor. In her 2018 decision, Judge Burroughs said that the system was, quote, not perfect and that implicit bias training might be used to benefit the process. However, Burroughs concluded that the system was constitutional and said, Quote, the court will not dismantle a very fine admissions program that passes constitutional muster solely because it could do better.
1: Harvard College spokesperson Rachel Dane said, quote, our admissions process values academic excellence, but never reduces applicants to any one factor, such as grades or test scores. Race is one of many factors that Harvard considers in evaluating each applicant as a whole person, an approach that helps create a diverse campus community where students from all walks of life have the opportunity to share ideas and learn from each other. Harvard also uses many race-neutral means to pursue diversity, including extensive recruiting and one of the most generous financial aid policies in the country. And it has carefully studied other potential race-neutral measures ultimately concluding that the consideration of race, among many other factors, remains necessary to attain an exceptional class that is diverse on many dimensions and central to the ability of Harvard College to pursue its educational mission. So what's the current status of the case?
2: Current status is that it's still alive. So uh, Judge Burroughs, Judge Allison Burroughs, in the district court in Boston, Uh, ruled in Harvard's favor, but the plaintiffs appealed. Um, The circuit court also ruled in Harvard's favor just in November, I believe. And the plaintiffs appealed again. So in, in the sense that they've asked the Supreme Court to hear it. And I think that was their strategy from the beginning was to have a hearing by the Supreme Court. It's not clear whether the high court will do that, but um, it's considered possible, maybe even likely.
0: Why is it considered likely?
2: Well, for a couple of reasons. There are three new conservative justices on the court appointed by uh, President Trump. and They may have ideas about race based admissions or race conscious admissions that um, they want to explore. There have been a number of decisions about college admissions over the years, and this may be just a time in history when uh, the court would like to revisit the question of how college admissions is done so um so those two reasons both both there's a kind of historical trajectory in court opinions that leads us to this point and that might lead the court to want to revisit such a case and And then there's the composition of the Supreme Court, which has changed recently. This case could have huge ramifications for the rest of the country because the Harvard method of Admitting students has been widely adopted by universities across the country. So I think they're all watching it really closely and wondering whether they may have to change the way they do things. So it's huge in that way.
0: Thank you for joining us, Animona. Next,
1: we're joined by Dr. Megan Sagoshi who studies race and equity in higher education. She has served on the admissions committee at Northwestern University and worked on diversity initiatives at the University of Michigan and Boston University. In the SFFA v. Harvard lawsuit, she co-authored an amicus brief in support of Harvard's admission practices.
0: Amicus in Latin means friend of the court. These kinds of briefs are often submitted by people or organizations who are not a party to the case, but can offer the court expertise or insight on the topic in question.
1: Segoshi's brief addresses the quote racial politics of the debate surrounding the SFFA case. The brief says it offers insights on Asian American frames and ideologies of racism, capitalism, and education to account for their divergent political perspectives and choices in the affirmative action debate.
3: So um, there are actually two major um, questions here. Number one, is Harvard discriminating against, intentionally discriminating against Asian-Americans in their admissions process? And number two, what does that have to do with affirmative action? So first, what exactly is affirmative action? Sure, so there's kind of two ways I can answer that. One is my opinion, and the other is what is legally permissible, right? So um affirmative action actually was developed as a reparative program to address systemic inequality and racism that um has occurred in this country and has essentially resulted in fewer opportunities for uh, black, Latinx, Native American people of color. That is not the legally permissible rationale, however, for affirmative action in higher education. In 1978, um, in Bakke versus UC Davis, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that quotas were not admissible in higher education admissions, and that the only legally permissible uh, reason or rationale for having affirmative action as part of your admissions practice is to create a more diverse student body. During the Bakke ruling, Justice Powell
0: said. "As they are, uh, six separate opinions, I will state first the court's judgment. Insofar as the California court prohibited Davis from considering Reyes as a factor in admissions, we reverse. In my view, the only state interest that fairly may be viewed as compelling on this record is the interest of a university in a diverse student body.
3: Um, and that has essentially been upheld in in subsequent cases, um, like we saw at the University of Michigan, where the um, only reason that a school can practice holistic admissions and consider race in their admissions policy is to create this more diverse learning environment. And there's plenty of research out there now that shows that it is indeed beneficial for all students to have a diverse learning environment Personally, I do believe that affirmative action should be used um, to address systemic inequalities, but legally speaking, that is not allowed. So as I kind of implied in my answer, affirmative action has been watered down over the years. It used to be reparative, and now it's only for this diversity rationale. Even despite that, though, even despite the change in the legally permissible rationale, we still know that it does have an impact on diversity in in higher education. So California is a perfect example. If you look at diversity in the UC system, when uh, that system banned affirmative action, you see a pretty dramatic drop in the amount of black students on their campuses. In
1: 1996, California passed an amendment prohibiting state agencies from considering race, sex, and ethnicity in their hiring, contracting, and admissions processes. This means that since 1996, the schools that make up the University of California system, like UC Berkeley or UCLA, cannot employ
0: affirmative action practices in their admissions. From 1998 to 2019, the rate of admissions for Black, Latinx, and Native American students fell by about 30 percent. Admission rates for all ethnic groups declined over this span of more than two decades as a result of more students applying in general. But the biggest differences are seen within these three ethnic groups. In fact, while Black and Latinx students make up 57% of high school graduates in California, they only make up 39% of admitted freshmen to the UC system.
3: A school... Could discriminate against a group of students who might otherwise have been admitted if they were white. This is actually a phenomenon called uh, negative action. But affirmative action refers to the holistic review of an applicant that may take race into consideration, along with hundreds of other factors um, for whether or not they're going to be admitted. And of course, when you look at a school like Harvard, there are going to be extremely qualified applicants, right? And we can get into a little bit more what we mean by qualified. This question of qualifications, this question of merit, what does it mean to deserve to get in? What does it mean to have, um, you know, worked hard enough in order to get into a school? And qualified can mean a number of different things depending on the school, depending on the students. So there are typically hundreds of factors that are considered when um, determining whether or not a student will be admitted. I mean, there are more students who are qualified than get admitted. For example, they may take into account things like um, diversity. So the students, race, uh, gender, uh, socioeconomic class, they may take into account where the student is from. Um, Are they from the United States? If so, where in the United States are they from? Things like that. Back to my point on socioeconomic status, do the students' financial needs, can they be accommodated by the university or not? And then of course, their academic record. So looking at GPAs, most schools, so looking at test scores, um, looking at writing samples, looking at teacher recommendations, which are a whole other subjective um, component. Uh, Many schools conduct interviews with students. Are they athletes? Are they musicians? (laughs) Do they have other special talents? Have they um, engaged in research before? I mean, I could go on and on, right? There are so many different factors, some of them based on quote unquote merit, and then others that are, more qualitative Um, and if we take into account like something like the SAT score um, a lot of folks will say that the SAT score is an objective number numerical quantitative score that you can clearly see you know this student is better than this student however we also know that what your zip code is um, and how wealthy your parents are are very good predictors of what your score will be on the SAT a student who gets you know a perfect score on the SAT, but who came from a public school that was underfunded and who didn't maybe have the support that they needed to succeed academically and who didn't have access to test prep classes and things like that versus a student who went to, you know, a very elite private school who had all the test prep, whose parents went to that university. Like if they get the same score on the SAT, is that really the same score? So is it really an objective measure? I don't know. I don't think so personally, and there's a lot of research to back that up. It's also not a very good predictive measure. Same thing goes for GPA. Um, they are predicted to some extent, but certainly not predictive in terms of whether or not a student will be successful in the college, and then we have to think, you know, what does that mean too?
0: The Supreme Court has heard a number of affirmative action cases. It's most recent being Fisher v. the University of Texas in 2016. The court then upheld affirmative action as part of the admissions process. Both the Fisher case and the SFFA admissions lawsuit were orchestrated by the same man, Edward Bloom. Megan,
1: what makes this SFFA case different from all the other affirmative action cases that came before it?
3: So one thing that's different is the way in which Asian Americans have been positioned in this debate. So Asian-Americans have exerted agency in affirmative action cases for a very long time as contributors to um, amicus briefs and evidence. However, this time we have an Asian-American plaintiff in the case, and they are alleging discrimination against Asian-Americans in the Harvard review process. Now again, is discrimination against Asian Americans the same thing as holistic review? If there is discrimination against Asian Americans, does that then follow that holistic review is discriminatory? Um, These are questions that have come up as a result of this case. And so it's also interesting because there is somewhat of a history of discrimination when it comes to holistic review. We also know that some schools, particularly on the West Coast, have apologized decades ago, but did apologize for discriminating against Asian Americans in their process. And so there's a history here. This case did not pop up out of nowhere. But for the first time, we see Asian Americans really front and center to the debate. Now, I would argue that they have been placed in the middle of this debate as uh, kind of one more vestige of white supremacy that pins groups of color against one another, when really the issue here is that there is inequity, racial inequity in access to higher education um, and in many other facets of our society as well.
1: Is there a reason why the plaintiffs chose an Asian-American student to be the face of the SFFA lawsuit?
3: Yeah. So we know that Ed Blanc, who is kind of the ringleader for SFFA and has been on this anti-affirmative action crusade for some time now, um, specifically sought after an Asian-American applicant. There's actually video of him saying this, that he wants an Asian-American defendant in the next affirmative action uh, lawsuit. And so he got one um, in this Harvard case. The reason this is significant is because he was kind of intentionally trying to seek out Asian Americans who are a good representative for his side because they are people of color. Um, They do experience discrimination and racism in this country. And yet they are very highly represented in higher education. So they kind of occupy this unique positionality in terms of race and the racial landscape in the U.S. By selecting an Asian American plaintiff, he was then able to leverage that notion that affirmative action is actually bad for people of color. That's not The case, (laughs) but um, he was able to kind of manipulate Asian identity and place Asian identity front and center in his argument against a process that is intended to increase racial diversity in higher education and in, in these incoming classes. In a statement to The Crimson, President
0: of SFFA, Edward Bloom, cited a 2019 Pew Research study that found that a majority of Black, Hispanic, white, and Asian-Americans are against using race as a factor in college admissions. He wrote, quote, I hope the proponents of racial preferences in college admissions are questioned about these percentages.
3: There is nationwide a small contingency, but a very loud contingency of Asian-Americans, particularly Chinese-Americans, who have uh, been who have joined Ed Blum in this anti-affirmative action kind of notion? They've largely bought into this idea that they are discriminated against in admissions, um, and that they ought to be more highly represented in higher education, or that they deserve to be more highly represented in in higher education. And I think another component that we uncovered um, that my um, colleague Oyan Poon and I have uncovered in some of our research on this, is that they have largely associated themselves in proximity to whiteness in such a way that um, they believe or have in some cases bought into white supremacy as an ideology, I guess, in some ways that will benefit them. Now, I don't think that's the case, regardless of who you are um, if you're a person of color. And I think that's actually the point of white supremacy. I think it's working if it has convinced Asian Americans that they will benefit from it, right? (laughs) But so yeah, I think there's this like conservative mainly Chinese-American and Vietnamese-American contingency um, that is very loud and has actively participated in these anti-affirmative action campaigns. Um, there's also a really large contingency of Asian-Americans that's a lot more diverse, that uh, has actively engaged in pro-affirmative action movements and that have you know signed on to amicus briefs and authored amicus briefs in support of Harvard's holistic admissions process because they're recognizing a, the, diverse, the legally permissible diversity rationale and the benefits that come along with racial diversity and the fact that if we were to eliminate affirmative action, we know that that could have very detrimental effects on the number of black and brown students who are admitted to these competitive institutions. If Asian Americans are applying to, and I'm, I'm using Harvard since that's what we were talking about. <laughs> if Asian Americans are applying to Harvard at higher rates than other groups, then that may result in lower rates of acceptance because there are more of them applying relative to the general their population. So there are you know reasons that may explain and account for the lower admissions rates for Asian Americans or any other group. Right. We also took a look at you know research that demonstrates the benefits of diversity and including Asian Americans in that diversity, and noted the fact that there remain many Asian American groups who are still very severely underrepresented in higher education at rates similar to those of Black, Latinx, and Native American folks. And so when you look at especially Southeast Asians, they are typically very underrepresented in the United States in higher education. And So perhaps they ought to be included in some sort of um, holistic admissions program. And in fact, in some states, they are. Asian America is very diverse. And in fact, the term Asian American was, you know, this panethnic identity that was Uh, developed in an effort to, you know, consolidate political power, influence among Asian Americans in solidarity with one another. We see efforts um, on the West Coast to disaggregate data on Asian Americans by ethnicity and ethnic group. And I, you know, I'm definitely in favor of doing that because there are a lot of groups that ought to be included, I think, in programs like affirmative action in higher education, but then also in, you know, employment and contracting because they remain underrepresented I do think that, you know, more conservative folks being against affirmative action. And part of that is because of this reliance on a libertarian and individualistic ideology that that says, you know, if you work hard enough, you can get into whatever school or you deserve to get into whatever school. And we know that like there's tons of students who quote unquote deserve (laughs) to get into these competitive schools. But the reality is that they can't all get in. And there are a bazillion different factors that that go into that decision on the, the admissions side. You definitely see more liberal and progressive Americans falling on the side uh, pro-affirmative action. But I do think there's a lot of misinformation, generally speaking, on both sides out there about what holistic Um, admissions really is about how affirmative action is actually practiced. I think a lot of people still think that it means quotas. I think a lot of people still think that it means if you're Black, you get plus 20 on your admissions profile or whatever, but both of those things have been illegal for years now. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what holistic admissions means and how it's practiced on both sides um, of, you know, the political spectrum. What would
0: happen to the admissions process as we know it if this Harvard admissions lawsuit is heard in the Supreme Court and affirmative action is deemed unconstitutional?
3: Well, um, the result would be that race could no longer be considered a factor in uh, the admissions process, which means that when you look at an applicant's materials or you interview an applicant, those experiences directly related to their racial identity may not really count anymore. And we know based on bans of affirmative actions that have happened in in several states now that that, the result will be a decrease in the number of Black and Brown students who are admitted. And when I say Black and Brown, I guess I'm referring more specifically to Black, African-American, Native American, and Latinx um, applicants. So uh, we know that it will have a detrimental effect. It will affect the way that admissions um, offices conduct their admissions process, how they train their their folks and how they think about the construction of their incoming class.
1: Thank you to Anamona Hartakalas and Megan Segoshi for joining us for this episode.
0: A Legacy Revealed is by no means a comprehensive account of all the ways in which marginalized groups have helped shape Harvard's history or vice versa. Still, Six and I hope this podcast was informative and helped reveal some of the dark legacy that can sometimes be overlooked in Harvard's multi-centennial history. As the introduction of the Harvard College Handbook
1: so plainly states, quote, Harvard has a rich and complex history. Many of our graduate and faculty members as scholars and citizens have shaped the political, social, and economic landscape of our nation in countless ways that have contributed to the well-being of society and humanity. As a human institution, we have also sometimes fallen short of our aspirations. There are parts of our history that we can and should learn from. Our falling short in no way detracts from the power of our ideals. Rather, our failures remind us that we should never take for granted what we do and how we do it. We must recognize that as a community devoted to learning, our work is never complete.
0: The crazy thing is that um, like I lived in Pettipacker um, my freshman year and whenever I'd walk to Annenberg I'd pass by the Harvard Art Museum. There's this like blue little post with white font and it says something like Louis Agassiz, a great Swiss naturalist and Elizabeth Cabot uh, lived here and I walked by it like almost like every day for a year and I never really thought anything about it. When you think about how embedded he was in the Cambridge neighborhood because like he lived there, he studied there, he was a professor there, like you know, like, it's, it's just wild.
2: And when people hear the whole story, they'll understand my motivation. Um, and you know, and it's not like I'm trying to shame Harvard, but I'm just extremely disappointed and um it's funny i had a talk with some school students but they talk about well why won't harvard give you back your family photos and you know harvard was my number one pick for schools and now i'm wondering whether i want to go to such a university when kids are saying that you know this this action by harvard makes them not want to go there you know i think that that should resonate with harvard that You know, some people feel very strongly that this is such an inherently wrong thing and and actually see Harvard in a different light. And so, um, you know, something to consider. There's so much work that needs to be done.
1: That doesn't mean that we're gonna stop fighting because sometimes the most provocative questions are not the ones that get answered, but specifically the questions that don't get answered. This series is hosted by Raquel Cornell Uribe and 6U. It's produced by Lara Dada and edited by Thomas Mazenov,
0: with music by Dash Chin and art by Madison Shirazi. From the Harvard Crimson, this was a Legacy Review.